Good morning. Uh, my name is Matt Luloyan, and I serve as one of the pastors of Liberty Church in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, right about eight years ago uh, was when my wife and I first heard about this small uh, family of churches. There were three of them at the time, uh, and ultimately ended up moving to Harrisburg uh, in September of 2011 to plant uh, and to pastor there. By God's grace, actually, next Sunday, uh, February 3rd, will be the seventh anniversary uh, for us when we launched um, weekly worship gatherings. So I want to start this morning just by taking this opportunity uh, to say how grateful I am to be part of this network. A number of you have actually been, uh, been part of it longer than I have. Uh, many of you have prayed for me, uh, have prayed for the women, uh, the men, the children of Liberty Harrisburg. Uh, and really, I, I say this truthfully, we would not exist we would not be able to celebrate our seventh anniversary next week uh, if it were not for this network. As some of you know, we were uh, most directly planted by Liberty River Wards, uh, the artist formerly known as Liberty East, and the pastors uh, and the elders there, uh, Steve Huber, John Alexander, Andy Young, Dave Wenger, over the course of those initial years of our life as a young church and church plant, uh, they spent hours of their lives uh, as mentors, as counselors, as shepherds, as friends, as co-laborers uh, to me and to the rest of our core team. Uh, and that was, that continues to be today, a true gift of God. So my prayer uh, is that today I would somehow be able to encourage all of you with just a small measure of the encouragement that I've received from you. As a network, and I, I know you've heard uh, other pastors and leaders in our network talk about this, but as a network, we do three primary things together. Uh, we plant new churches. And so today we're celebrating that over the past two months, we've seen two new Liberty churches planted beginning weekly worship services. Uh, that's Liberty Montgomery County, uh, and that's Liberty Northeast. We also participate in region-wide uh, mercy and justice initiatives together. And so soon you'll be hearing about Easter Outreach, where we will together seek to bless the people of our neighborhoods in celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And the third thing we do together is that, that we link arms uh, for global mission and for global mercy. Uh, we work with groups like Alarm to provide training to rural pastors in Africa who would otherwise not have access to that kind of training. And we work with organizations like Water is Basic to help ensure that people in places like South Sudan have access to clean water. What I want to contemplate with you for, for just a little while this morning uh, really touches on all three of these things that we do together as a network. And it's framed by a question that's really simple to ask, really easy to ask, and really hard to answer. And the question is this, can we actually make a difference in these things? Can we actually make a difference in these things? These are massive initiatives that we undertake. And even as I rattled them off a few seconds ago, it feels audacious, perhaps even arrogant, to say, well, this is what we do together as a network of churches. Can we actually make a difference? Is it actually worth the massive amount of time and energy and money that goes into planting new churches locally and globally? Is it worth it to bless people at Easter? Is it worth it to try to combat these major issues that exist in our world today? The lack of access to clean water is just one of the issues that, that people in our churches care about. What about racism and sexism and classism? What about poverty? What about human trafficking? There, there are all kinds of injustices against fellow image bearers of God. 
generally speaking, each of us lands in one of two camps when we wrestle with this question of can we actually make a difference. There's the naively hopeful and there's the cynical realists. So some are naively hopeful. Uh, if these causes that we care about, if they're new to you, maybe you're, you're new to Christianity, or maybe you just have an optimistic personality. So you immediately answer, yes, yes, we will, we can make a difference. But the question for you is this, are you accurately anticipating and counting the cost of these things? Are you prepared for the kind of resistance that you're going to experience both from within and from without? There is a cost to these endeavors that we undertake together. If you've been on one of the core teams of the Liberty Churches any time over the past 17 years, and if you're still here, then you know the pace, uh, the burden, the suffering, the conflicts that come with that. Not all of our church plants have made it over these 17 years. And so you may have stepped into one of our churches, you may have stepped onto one of those teams with some rose-colored glasses about the kind of difference that you were going to make. And if that's the case, you probably at some point got slapped pretty hard by reality. Hence the other camp that you might find yourself in today. Cynical realists. Cynical realists. For Christians who live long enough with their eyes and with their hearts open, you won't drift casually into optimism. You won't drift casually into optimism. The gravitational pull will be towards cynicism. And with it, a kind of resignation that tempts you to throw up your hands and say, why even bother? Scripture is more honest about this than, than you might realize. And over these past years, uh, there are a number of texts that have become to me a companion. And part of what calibrates and recalibrates my paradigm as a Christian. An especially impactful one comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. Is it possible to avoid both naivete and cynicism? Is it possible to have realistic hope? The gospel, the good news of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, definitively says yes. And so I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. One of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings trilogy comes at the end of The Two Towers. And uh, full disclosure, I'm kind of violating my agreement with some of the other Liberty pastors by talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, Steve Huber called dibs on Lord of the Rings years ago, I think before I was even born. So my turf is more like The Office and comedy movies from the 1990s because I'm an intellectual like that. Nonetheless... Uh, in this scene from The Two Towers, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee have once again narrowly escaped their death. And Frodo is exhausted. And he laments to Sam. He says, I can't do this anymore. I can't continue on this journey that we're on to destroy the ring. And Sam, ever the faithful companion, he, he listens and empathizes. But then he says to Frodo how in the great stories, as he calls them, in the great stories, the ones that really matter, the people in those stories have lots of chances to turn back, but they don't because they are holding on to something. And Frodo replies, what are we holding on to, Sam? It's a huge question. Really, it's another way of getting at this same question. Are we actually accomplishing something? Are we doing something here? Is this all worth it? At this point in the story, there's still a lot of the journey to go. The, the end is unknown. And so Frodo here is grasping for realistic hope. He's seen too much already to be naive anymore. He needs genuine hope that will inspire him to carry on in the midst of these impossible circumstances while this journey remains unfinished. And so he asks, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam replies that there's some good in this world and that it's worth fighting for. For years, this scene has prompted me to think about the difference between subjective hope and objective hope. Subjective hope is something that stirs up feeling sentiments of hope in us. It's wishful thinking regardless of truth. Objective hope is confidence in some fact that fundamentally changes the trajectory of our lives. So in this scene, Sam and Frodo find themselves in the midst of these horrible, difficult circumstances. And Sam's reason for enduring that is his belief that there's some good in the world worth fighting for. But that immediately begs two questions. Number one, is that true? And number two, does it matter? 
Does it matter if it's true? In one sense, the subjective sense, it doesn't matter if that's true or not. Even if there's nothing worth fighting for, Sam's conviction that there is something worth fighting for motivates him to carry on. But in the other sense, the objective sense, it does matter. If Sam is wrong, then, then ultimately their journey is meaningless. Their sense of hope might keep them going, but evil is ultimately going to triumph and the journey won't have done anything except delay the inevitable. And it would also make that a terrible movie. Who would want to sit through 12 hours of Peter Jackson's footage for that conclusion? In this first chapter of Colossians, the Apostle Paul builds his case for both the subjective and the objective hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only will this message of, the, of good news motivate you to press on, but it's actually true. So though we'll only get to scratch the surface in the time that we have, three aspects that Paul lays out here about realistic hope. It's cosmic, it's personal, and it's embodied. Cosmic, personal, and embodied. So first, it's a cosmic hope. Verses 15 through 20 uh, are likely part of an early hymn or creed used by the church. And you perhaps heard it when we read it a few moments ago, but five times in these initial verses, there's a repetition of all things. And it attests to this universal, to this cosmic scope of the work of Jesus. And so Paul writes, Jesus is the creator. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And Paul says he is before all things. Jesus is also the sustainer. And Paul writes, in him, all things hold together. So he doesn't just create the cosmos and then take his hands off. Jesus is present and preserving and sustaining all that he has made. And then lastly, Jesus is reconciler. He's reconciler. Sin corrupts and fractures God's good design. Since sin entered the world, Paul writes in another letter in Romans chapter 8, that creation itself has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. But the good news of the gospel, the good news that we celebrate and that we rehearse each and every week in our churches, is that God did not abandon his creation to the corruption. That Jesus, the image of the invisible God, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, took on flesh, entered into his fractured creation, and by the blood of his cross, verse 20, is reconciling what? All things to himself. The broken relationship between God and his entire creation. So think about the cosmic scope of this work. Through Jesus, all things were created. Through Jesus, all things hold together. Through Jesus, all things are being reconciled. In the verses that follow, Paul will talk specifically about the hope of the gospel. But these initial verses, this hymn, is the content of that hope. Christians are those with realistic hope because the scope of Jesus' work is so massive. We have the audacity not only to hope that we can make a difference, but to join in the very mission of Jesus because he is reconciling all things to himself. Naively hopeful people latch on to an over-realized version of this. In other words, they think and they act and they carry themselves as if Jesus' reconciling work is already completed. And it's not. It's not. There's a way for us to underestimate the power of sin to corrupt and fracture, to not give sin enough credit. 
But as Christians, we have no reason to gloss over the power of sin or try to sweep it under the rug. Why? Because it gives us a category for all of the terrible things that happen in this earth. We can say with all integrity that things are not the way they're meant to be. I appreciate how a pastor named Scott Sauls puts it. He says, if Christianity has something significant to contribute to the question of suffering and evil, it is that Christianity is incredibly realistic about how messed up the world is. It's incredibly realistic about how messed up the world is. On the other side, cynical realists latch onto an underrealized version of this. So they might appropriately esteem the power of sin to corrupt and the power of sin to fracture. But the whole point of what Paul writes in these verses is that Jesus is preeminent over everything. There is no power greater than his. And so to become cynical, to become resigned or content with the corruptions of sin is therefore to forget the story of the world. It is to attribute more power, more preeminence to sin than it is to attribute preeminence and power to Jesus. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Confronted with cancer or confronted with a slum, the pantheist, one who sees the divine inherently in different parts of creation, the pantheist can say, if you could only see it from the divine point of view, you would realize that this also is God. The Christian replies, don't talk damned nonsense. For Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and states and the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made, and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. Realistic hope comes from recognizing this already not yet nature of Jesus' reconciliation. God does insist very loudly on putting things right again, so by his cross, Jesus has, past tense, made peace. But the full experience of that reconciliation is still in process. The completion of it has not yet come. And so as N.T. Wright says, hope is imagining God's future into the present. Hope is imagining God's future into the present. Christians are people of cosmic hope because we imagine and we anticipate this future, the fullness of Jesus' reconciliation of all things. Notice how this hope is not merely subjective. It's not that Christians just think Jesus is special. Paul says that two historical events, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, which were attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses, that these two events provide objective proof to this claim that Jesus is preeminent over everything. So if you're not a Christian, if you find yourself here this morning asking questions about who Jesus is, about what Christianity is all about, I can't think of a better starting point than these two events. So much of what Christians believe center on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so in the midst of whatever doubts or whatever obstacles feel to be in the way of you coming to, to believe and trust in the work of Jesus, it would be completely worth your time and your effort to honestly investigate the reliability of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Second, Let's talk about personal hope. Personal hope. Verse 21. And you, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh. There's a famous instance in G.K. Chesterton's life where the editors of the London Times asked people to write in and to give their answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? Just thinking about the things that we do together as a network of churches, there are a dozen or more ways we might answer that question together today. Chesterton wrote in a very short, a very simple reply. And he said this, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton said, I am. The scope of Jesus' reconciling work is cosmic. But we must never look at it so broadly, so universally, that we miss the good news that it is personally and communally. Jesus isn't just writing ambiguous and general wrongs in the world. He is reconciling and restoring what sin fractures and corrupts in you and in me. The Colossians were Gentiles. They were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they were once, as a people, alienated from the people and the promises of God. Not only this, they were hostile in mind. What they did know about God, they rejected. They participated in evil deeds, Paul writes. But the reconciling work of Jesus is for them too. Just as the reconciling work of Jesus is for you. For all who would come. As Paul goes on to write, this is for all who believe and who continue on in faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Some tribes of Christians, and we're especially prone to this in Western society, make the gospel a hyper-individualized thing. So it's about me and Jesus, and that's it. And so reconciliation likewise becomes only about my reconciliation. This view leads people to abandon their neighbors, to abandon the world to the corruption of sin. It leads them to seek to build a fortress. I can't really say build a wall anymore because that has a very particular meaning in this cultural moment. But it leads them to seek to build a fortress and hide out from the rest of the world. I don't think that's our error in Liberty Churches. One of the reasons that you're here is likely because you care about mercy and justice in the world. As churches, we care about things that happen in our cities and in our regions. We seek to, as you've heard it said before, live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus, not just for those who believe or who set foot into our gatherings. We seek to live that way among everyone in the time and place to which God has called us. So the other error, and perhaps we need this reminder today, is that for any of us who would be people of mercy and justice in the world, who would champion causes of things near to the heart of God, Jesus making all things new, all things new, also means Jesus makes you new. Jesus making all things new also means Jesus makes you new. This keeps us humble and dependent. It protects other people from our arrogance. We are not saviors of the world because the world already has a savior, and we need him too. It also protects us from ourselves, because though we are called to participate in Jesus' work, the weight of that burden will crush us if we try to own it in the wrong way. Christians are people of realistic hope, because before it is ever our mission to others, it is Jesus' mission to us. 
before it is ever our place to be people of mercy in the world, it is our place to receive mercy and to be reconciled to God ourselves. And when we're honest, and when we come face to face with our own need for Jesus' reconciliation, when we see how he has accomplished that for us by his own death and resurrection, we become increasingly hopeful, realistically hopeful for how he will continue his reconciling work. So third and finally, embodied hope. Embodied hope. Christians are those who embody hope to the world. Quite literally, actually. In verse 26, Paul writes that what was unknown, what was hidden for generations, is now revealed through this cosmic and personal work of Jesus. And the apex of this revealed mystery is that Christians are not only reconciled by Jesus, but they are united with him. You are in Christ, and Paul says Christ is in you. This is the hope of glory. For this reason, we have genuine hope. We are not distant observers of Jesus' work. We aren't merely objects or recipients of it. We are participants with him. And Paul says that he rejoices even in his sufferings because they fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Which is a crazy statement. Because nothing is lacking in the sufficiency of Jesus' death. There's nothing deficient about the afflictions of Jesus. The only thing lacking is that unless you were there, you didn't get to witness it yourself. You didn't get to see Jesus suffer for you. You didn't get to see Jesus make peace with God for you. But Paul is saying that because he's united with Christ, his own suffering fills that gap. When Paul suffers for their sake, for the sake of the Colossians, that they might know and believe and grow in the gospel, they come to know something of what Christ himself has done for them. That's the kind of impact, think about this, that's the kind of impact our lives can have and even our suffering can have in the world. We say that we seek to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you thought about that statement deeply. That's an unbelievable reality of the Christian faith. That Christ in you not only solidifies your own hope, it imparts genuine, realistic hope to others because in us, others get to see something of Jesus himself. It is Christ who reconciles the world to himself. And it is Christ who is in you. And therefore, Christ is reconciling the world to himself through the everyday faithfulness of realistically hopeful people like you and me. Being a network of churches together helps us combine our small everyday efforts into something bigger. Something bigger than even the sum of the collective parts. Can you make a difference in these things? I want to close this morning by telling you how you have. The history of this letter is that a man from Colossae named Epaphras traveled to this large metropolitan city of Ephesus around the same time that the Apostle Paul was there. And Epaphras responded to Paul's proclamation of the good news of Jesus. Returning then to his hometown, the much smaller the much less significant city of Colossae. Not a port city like Ephesus was, a lot further inland in Asia Minor. Epaphras began sharing the same good news that he himself had received with his family, with his friends. And a new church in a new city was born. As far as we know, 
the Apostle Paul never set foot in the city of Colossae, which is unique because most of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are to cities, are to places that he himself visited and ministered among. Unless you're from there, you probably couldn't care less about Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's not Philadelphia. It's a lot smaller. It's not a port city. It's a lot further inland. It's in the midst of this place not, not so affectionately referred to by many Philadelphians as Pennsylvania. But Harrisburg is to Philadelphia what Colossae was to Ephesus. And by your participation in the life of Liberty Churches here, even if you've never set foot there, by your faithful presence, by your faithful labors here, you have been part of a new church coming to existence in that city. By the grace of God, in the years to come, we'll have an opportunity to do that over and over again. Sometimes, and hopefully, in even smaller places. So just a few days ago, a couple at Liberty Harrisburg shared with me their heart for their small town of 4,000 people called Newport. It's in a place called Perry County, Pennsylvania, which if you live in Harrisburg, how the first century Jews thought about Samaritans, that's kind of how people in the Harrisburg region think about people from Perry County. But here's an amazing couple in our church with a longing to see the darkness pushed back and the reconciliation of Jesus come to bear in their town and among these 4,000 people. And so who knows? In time, what Epaphras was to Colossae, and if they and a few of their friends might end up being to Newport, Pennsylvania. So Liberty Churches, may you live and speak and serve with hope. May you worship and give and love one another and love your neighbor with hope. Not subjective hope that you have to manufacture for yourself, but realistic, objective hope. Hope that is cosmic, hope that is personal, hope that is embodied. Christ is in you. And this is the hope of glory. Our labors do make a difference. Because just as he has reconciled us, God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. O oh Lord our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior. Grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, we might also gratefully share it with others and ever give you glory, by whose grace alone we are what we are. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.